opioid-induced constipation impacts 40 to 80% of patients on long-term opioid therapy. Yet, it is a side effect of opioid use that is rarely discussed. In fact, a patient-reported survey found that 37% of patients with non-cancer pain suffering from opioid-induced constipation did not talk to their healthcare provider about constipated-related symptoms which can include reduced bowel movement frequency, a sense of incomplete emptying of your bowels, and more. Thus, patients often struggle in silence. Welcome to the Chronic Pain Experience podcast, where we take you on a listening journey as we help to bridge the gap between you and your healthcare provider with content curated for life with pain. I am your host, Dina Chopolis. Today, I'm excited to do things a little differently here. We're going to invite two amazing guests on today. Um, today, I'm going to first introduce you to Nicole Hemingway. Uh, and we also will have uh, invite later on in the show, Megan Philoramo. Nicole currently serves as CEO of the U.S. Pain Foundation. She previously directed The Invisible Project, an online and print magazine that highlights the experiences of people living with pain for the organization. Nicole is also an author and motivational speaker. Her book, No, It's Not In My Head, The Journey of a Chronic Pain Survivor from Wheelchair to Marathon, details her struggles and triumphs in dealing with complex regional pain syndrome, a debilitating neurological disorder. In September 2015, Nicole was featured in a campaign in USA Today in recognition of her role as an advocate for those living with chronic pain. And in 2017, she received the Unsung Hero Award for her work in the pain community. Nicole lives in the Nashville area with her husband and three young sons, and today, a whole lot of snow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Welcome, Nicole, and thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is such an important conversation, and I'm really glad that you guys actually approached me because this is something I wanted to touch on, but had no idea where to go. So you guys are going to be guiding me through this process as well. Um, today, we are talking about opioid-induced constipation, but first, a little context. So a research paper that I referred to earlier from 2014 measured the impact of uh, opioid-induced constipation on pain management and adherence to opioid medication. Data was collected from an online self-reported survey where 504 adults using opioids to treat chronic pain. So overall, 49.6% of patients reported modifications to their uh, opioid therapy because of constipation in the last six months. Approximately 20% discontinued an opioid medication because of constipation, and almost half of the study respondents modified their opioid therapy to manage constipation side effects. This analysis showed that constipation related to use of opioids can impact adherence to opioid therapy and pain management. So clearly we have a lot to talk about. So, all right, let's get right into it. Can you tell our listeners uh, a little bit more about why the U.S. Pain Foundation started the Opioid-Induced Constipation Awareness Day? Yes, well, actually, uh, U.S. Pain Foundation is collaborating with another organization, as well as Salix Pharmaceutical, who created the Awareness Day. And really, the main goal is to break down the stigma and silence around living with OIC. Right. Good. Yes, a very strong message that we need all to hear. What are the goals or messages emphasized on this day? I think one of the big things is really, again, breaking down that stigma for having people feel comfortable talking about 
constipation related to taking their opioid medications. Uh, for people to know that there are tools out there, that there are therapies out there that can make a huge difference and impact on their lives. And then that in turn can lead to better health outcomes. Right. Because, I mean, we know chronic pain in itself is so life altering. And then to have uh, constipation on top of that is um, soul crushing. <laughs> I think really it's it's so difficult. <laughs> I would sure. It is. It it's devastating. And then until you have gone through it, you don't realize how it, it impacts almost every aspect of your life, uh, from being able to socialize, from being able to work, um, from being able to have um a normal a normal existence in so many ways. You really do become um almost a prisoner to the OIC and the fear of not knowing when you're going to have a bowel movement, the inability to have a bowel movement, the embarrassment to talk about it. These are all things that we want to address. We want to normalize and we want to make sure that people know that there is help out there. So it seems that uh, many individuals might be hesitant, uh, as we know, to discuss or ask questions about constipation, especially when it's related to opioid use. Uh, in your experience, what do you think contributes to this hesitation? And I know we talked a little bit about it, but how can we encourage more open communication about constipation, uh, particularly within the context of pain management? That is such a great question as well. And that um, I, I think that there are layers to, to how we, we move forward. One thing that I would stress to anyone listening today um, is to be comfortable talking about your bowel movements. Really understand what a normal bowel movement is, what is regularity, um, and, and have those discussions with your healthcare provider. It might not seem to be the most comfortable conversation, you might feel embarrassment, you might feel squeamish, but we need to start talking about it. Um, for, for me personally, having lived with chronic pain for 30 years, as well as having an OIC experience for, for quite a few years, I know how embarrassed I was. I know that anytime the doctor brought it up, I would almost try to brush it aside. Like, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Right. And it's constant reminders and a provider constantly saying, how are your bowel movements? Are you constipated? And it was finally after months and months and months of my healthcare professional asking when I was going in for my appointments that I finally said, well, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm totally regular and then getting the help that I needed. And so for me, I think one of the things is to become aware, to become informed as a person living with chronic pain, taking a pain medication that causes opioid-induced constipation. Know what those medications might be. Um, become informed and empowered on what uh, regular bowel movements are and what opioid-induced constipation is. Know that you are not alone, that many others are going through this as well. Um, as a healthcare professional, your doctor hears many, many things. So just feel comfortable and having these honest, open conversations. Yes. Um, and then really seeking out different treatments that, that can make a difference. It really can change a, a part of your pain journey. Mm -hmm. We don't need to have additional suffering right. uh, going on while we're also living with multiple chronic illnesses or a chronic disease or serious injury. Absolutely. Well said. It is, it's about quality of life. And, uh, and it does make me sad how it's not 
even without constipation or without chronic pain, talking about our bowel movements is not really normalized in our society. And um, I, I think it, we need to start at home talking to our kids about poop. I know that's crazy because it's one of the pillars, right, of our overall well-being. And so if we can normalize just talking about it, and especially with your doctor, of all people, they're the ones that, you know, would be very comfortable <laughs> talking about something like yes. constipation. I definitely agree with you. And having three young boys, uh, bowel movements is a constant thing in our, our, our household. People talk, the kids talk about it all the time. It's at a certain point growing up that we, we stop talking about it, that we start to think that it is a private conversation and something that we shouldn't be discussing. And I want us to, to think about it differently and start looking at the different signs, the symptoms, and making sure that you are seeking the care you need. I do think, and I want to acknowledge this for many that are living with OIC, there is a fear talking about it with a healthcare professional. One fear is being stigmatized more, having to talk about something that's uncomfortable. The other fear is the fear of losing a medication that might be making a big difference in their ability to live out their lives. And so I, I want to make sure that I acknowledge that. And for those that are tuning in, I hear you, I understand you. Um, but please know that you don't need to, to suffer in silence. And, and please know that um, opioid induced constipation is a disease in and of itself that can be treated and can be addressed. Mm, well said. Now, can you recall how you were able to work through that fear? Uh, first of all, what was the fear that you started off with? And then how did you find your way through that? Mine wasn't started by fear, actually. It was started by embarrassment. I was very young at the time. I was in my late teens, early 20s. Uh, I was always going to the doctor's appointments with somebody else because it is always great to have somebody with you, but it was either one of my parents or it was a uh, my friend's parents. And it always made me just embarrassed. I didn't want to talk about poop. I didn't want to talk about my bowels. I didn't want to discuss constipation. Now I'll talk about it any time of the day. So for me, it was more about... Um, thinking that it was a private discussion and that I, I didn't want to go there because I didn't know what questions they were going to ask next. And so for anyone else that's out there that is like me, don't be, go mm. talk, share. Again, reiterating, we just want to make, we want to normalize this. We want to normalize this conversation with family, loved ones, physicians. So you have touched on it a little bit already, but Chronic pain in itself is very much biological, psychological, social. So too is living with constipation. So you touched on it earlier on about how it impacts our day-to-day -day when you live with constipation, you know, whether you're missing out on life because you're not able to go out, um, you're fearful, you're not sure when the next bowel movement might be. You know, how else would you, either in your experience or what you're witnessing in others, how will it really impact uh, the day-to-day? There's a lot of uh, shame sometimes talking about uh, OIC and, and then that burden because you don't want to tell people that you're not leaving the house because you haven't had a bowel movement in X amount of days and you're afraid that it's going to happen. And then if it does happen, where is the nearest bathroom? How long will I be stuck in a public restroom? 
Um, the nobody wants to hear about the straining, the clenching, the crying, the the pain that is caused from OIC. Uh, it is it is all encompassing for for many individuals. It truly is something that. Uh, the more that we could talk about it, the more that we can become educated and informed, we become empowered. And with that, I'm hoping that individuals um, have the tools to effectively talk about this with their healthcare professionals to seek out the appropriate therapy options that might be out there for them. Right. Yes. And that's why, hence the, the initiative for this day. I yes. think it's fantastic. Okay. So either from your experience or what you're seeing uh, throughout the U.S. Pain Foundation, or even who you're partnering with, how can individuals proactively engage with healthcare providers to discuss these modifications to their opioid therapy? And what role does patient advocacy play in ensuring their pain management plan, their plan is both effective and manageable? Well, if effective communication with your healthcare professional is key. Uh, it is and it's very difficult and challenging for many living with pain to find that relationship and that positive connection where you become a team with your providers, that you feel heard and seen and validated, and that your provider might not have the, the options out there, but that they are there walking this path with you and recognize and validate the experiences that you are going through. So I, I really believe that so much comes from a positive relationship between an individual living with a chronic disease and their provider. With that said, open, honest communication and dialogue is fundamental. Um, we have to be able to talk about our concerns, the um, symptoms that we are experiencing, the sensations, the feelings, so that we can get the help that we need um, through an individualized, integrative approach. And so it really comes down to um, communication and, and finding that voice. And, and that is why U.S. Pain Foundation exists, to provide free programs um, and support and information and, and tools on how to advocate. Right. Amazing. And yes, you're right. It is all about advocating for yourself. And I think if we can maybe encourage our listeners to take some time before they go to their appointment to really, you know, before that anxiety kicks in and, and that short time frame that you might have with your care provider is to really write these things down beforehand, you know, get prepared, um, write down the things that are on your mind when you have that clear headspace before you go in there. I think that's just one little helpful tip to, to get through that appointment uh, because sometimes, you know, we, it goes so fast and you might be thinking about other things and you might forget to mention something really important, like, you know, the, what you're experiencing from OIC. Absolutely. I think that is very important to write them down. Mm -hmm. uh, also to prioritize them yes. and, and make sure that you are prioritizing and, and really focusing in on those key areas. Uh, the other thing too, I would stress is once your provider shares information, recite it back to make sure that you're hearing it correctly. Um, make sure that nothing is lost in some type of translation. Right. Well said. Yes. And then even go home and write it down again so that you've got yes. your records. <laughs> yeah. Good call. Especially when you've got three kids, you know, tugging <laughs> at you when you get home. Uh, okay. So, and, you know, hopefully this question is a fair question, but what do you think our healthcare system could be doing better to address the implications of OIC? 
I would love for healthcare professionals to, to ask in every appointment, um, are you living with constipation? Um, because I think with that, it will start normalizing this whole discussion and this whole topic. And the more and more that individuals hear that question, they might, they might say no the first time. They might say no the 10th time. But maybe that, that 13th time that they're in a doctor's appointment and somebody says it, maybe then they will have um, the strength to say, yes, it is a problem. I, I've just been embarrassed to talk about it till now. So Nicole, it sounds like you had a fantastic provider who was really engaging in conversation. For any of our listeners who may not have that comfort with their provider, what would you recommend for our listeners to do if they're not having that conversation currently? Well, I think I would almost change that question in a sense. And, and what should the healthcare professionals be doing to make sure that patients have these conversations? I really believe it falls on the healthcare professionals and I would love each and every one of them to be asking about this, speaking about it openly in every conversation, every doctor's appointment, because then it is going to give their patients the opportunity to feel comfortable and get the help that they need. To your point, I was so lucky and fortunate. I had a doctor that asked me at every single appointment and look how long it took me to even come forward and say, yes, I I actually do have opioid-induced constipation. We need to make sure that all healthcare professionals are asking those same questions and, and start having those honest conversations with their patients and making it comfortable for them to say the same thing I did. Yes, I do live with OIC. And then from there, we can look at how do we treat that? How do we find therapies that are going to make a difference? And I think one of the key points there is just that it doesn't, it's not up to us. It's not up to the patient, right? Um, right? But also, I think creating that sense of safety. So if we can encourage our care providers to really create that safe space to be able to have these conversations, that would be extremely helpful too. A hundred percent. Yes. Now, before we switch over to Megan, um, I just want to ask you one last question. Is there anything else that you wanted to bring to the tables today before I let you go? Well, I just want to say thank you so much. It's an honor to be here today with everybody. I want people to know that if you are living with opioid-induced constipation, you are not alone. There are tools out there. Please go visit the website. If you are struggling with chronic pain and you need support, U.S. Pain Foundation has online peer support groups. We have many different educational events and resources that you can get involved in. And we also help people learn how to advocate for themselves. So know that we are out there for you. Um, we are walking this path alongside you uh, and you are not alone. And could I also ask, what is the official Opioid-Induced Constipation Awareness Day? The official OIC Awareness Day is December 5th. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you so, so much for being here today, Nicole. I really appreciate your perspective, your input today. Thank you so much. Hey everyone, and welcome to the second part of the show. In this part, I'm going to be bringing in a new guest. Her name is Megan Filaramo. Megan is a nurse practitioner with two decades of experience in the field of pain management. As a member of the Maxim Health Team, she serves patients at Morristown Medical Center and is a member of the master's faculty at the American Society of Pain Management Nurses. She's recognized as an advanced practice pain management nurse by ASPMN, 
and certified as a nurse coach by the International Nurse Coach Association. Megan plays an active role in helping patients reduce their pain and educating pain management providers. She is dedicated to empowering patients and nurses to take an active role in setting and achieving personal goals. I love it. Megan's work has been published in the Journal of Pain Management Nursing, and she speaks regularly at national conferences for the American Association of Nurse Practitioners and ASPMN. Megan received her master's degree in nursing science from Rutgers University and graduated magna cum laude with her undergraduate degree from Seton Hall University. She is completing her certification as an advanced practiced holistic nurse. Megan, really excited to have you here. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here too. We've got lots to talk about. <laughs> Excellent. But yes, we are definitely, again, focusing solely on um, opioid-induced constipation. Mm -hmm. So we really talked uh, in the first part of our show about a little bit more about the lived experience and just advocating uh, for ourselves as chronic pain patients. But wanted to dig in with you a little bit more around the health side and the mechanics side of um, OIC. So for our listeners who might be curious, what do we know about the mechanics behind opioid-induced constipation, and how do opioids actually cause uh, constipation? Yeah, I think it's a really important point because there's lots of things that can cause constipation, right? Mm -hmm. um, and regardless of what it is, constipation feels terrible. So mm -hmm. um, I think the important thing to kind of understand when it comes to opioids is that this it, it isn't a side effect that's going to go away right? There are side effects with opioids that go away, like nausea or sedation, like some of those things you can kind of get used to it. And then it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. But the way opioids work is they work on a specific receptor in your body, right? Okay. So that's called the mu receptor. There's other receptors, but that's the main one. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how they work for pain. They work in the spinal cord and they work on the mu receptors and it helps prevent pain as it goes up your spine to be processed by your brain. Unfortunately, there's other places that these mu receptors live. And one of the places that they live and cause problems is in the gut. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the gut, they're not, they're not um, working on pain transmission or blocking pain. Uh, they really work in a different capacity. Um, and in the gut, what they do is they slow down the normal movement of the gut. So everything just kind of sits there. Uh, the longer things sit there, the drier and bigger and harder they get. Um, and the other thing that the opioids uh, and the mu receptors do is they um, affect how much water can come back into the bowel. So because of that, it's that's why it's not something that your body will like get used to, like some of the other side effects, because every time you take it, it's still working on those receptors. So the approach has to be a little bit different. And, um, and I think that that's kind of why people can get frustrated because they're using an approach that doesn't really target uh, the mechanism. Okay. No, that's, that's fantastic. I think we could probably talk about that for a few hours. Um, but of course, of course <laughs> yes. Um, you did mention some of the um, typical, um, so, well, how people would feel with, with constipation as far as the mechanics. Sorry. I'm going to try that again. Edit. Um, Okay, let's dive in. Let's dive in a little deeper to understand uh, what that looks like. So, for those who may also be unfamiliar, how? Sorry, hold on. For those who may. Um, okay, take two. 
For those who may be unfamiliar, could you elaborate a little bit on the specific symptoms of opioid-induced constipation? Uh, and then how can individuals differentiate between regular constipation and constipation that is a result of opioid use? And then also, what are the key signs that they should be aware of? So there's a lot to unpack there. So the first part is yeah. just, what are the specific, specific symptoms of OIC? Okay. So um, I think probably everybody has been constipated in one way or another some point in their life. But I think really one of the um, kind of um, typical, for lack of a better word, like one of the main symptoms is that it doesn't stop, right? It doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. So people get a feeling of fullness. Mm -hmm. um, they get a feeling of uh, when they do go to the bathroom, they don't feel like they're done, like they don't feel like it worked enough or that they're all the way empty. Um, they get a lot of abdominal pain. Um, sometimes, especially if it's been going on for a while, they get nausea. And that's just because literally everything is backing up. Nothing is moving through. And the longer stuff sits in your stomach, the worse you feel. Right. So those are the big things. I think the other thing is, is with regular constipation, I, I hate to say regular, but you non-opioid induced constipation. Right. With regular constipation, usually eventually, you know, day three, maybe people go. With opioid induced constipation, you can see day three pass, day four pass, day five pass. And on day eight, you're panicking, right? And you feel awful. And it it really affects your whole quality of life. Right. Like if your gut isn't feeling good, there's no way the rest of you can feel good. For sure. So, and it's hard yeah. to focus on anything other than a it's the pain and also yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Good. That's really helpful. Now, um, is there a way? Is is it relatively clear when to tell the difference between whether it's OIC or just a sort of regular type of constipation? I know you touched on it a little bit, but are there ways to discern the two? I think the biggest thing is that it's a shift from your normal. Okay. So people kind of know what their norm is. You know, I have patients who will say, oh, well, I haven't had a bowel movement in however many days, but I always have to ask them, well, like, what, what's your normal? Like, have you been constipated since you were a child? Like, is every three days normal for you? Right. Or were you a twice a day person, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's a shift, Mm -hmm. um, very often, especially if people are taking opioids episodically, like they have days where they need a little bit more and days where they need a little bit less, they get good at knowing like, oh, I'm going to take this, but it's going to result in this. I think it's harder to distinguish when somebody is on a set regimen, yeah. because then their new norm is always having those mu receptors activated, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so... Um, and I think it's also important to remember that it's not always black and white, mm -hmm. right? It's, there's a lot, like we said at the beginning, there's a lot of mechanisms for constipation. So very rarely, very rarely are people only on an opioid, mm -hmm. right? They might be on something for their blood pressure. They might be on, um, a lot of patients are on something for their mood because mm -hmm. their nervous system, you know, does pain and it does mood. So they might be on an antidepressant. That can cause constipation. You know, they might be on something for their allergies. That can cause constipation. So, you know, it would be lovely if we could say, "Oh, it's this," and right. Just, oh, so it's that. But yeah, but yeah. we're we're 
more complicated. So I don't think it's always easy to tell uh, unless you're going up and down on your medication and then you can see a correlation. Right. Okay. That's a really important message. I love that. Yes. We just need to do a slightly deeper dive to really get the full picture to understand more about what perhaps is going on. And that's why, you know, oftentimes, well, it worked for my neighbor. (laughs) Might. Right. It's not necessarily going to work. Uh, okay, so we just need to understand that it's not a one size fits all. Okay. Um, and okay, I think actually you answered that question beautifully. So I'll move on. So we did touch on this uh, when we talked to Nicole, you also brought it up a little bit, but you know, we know there's so much more than just the biological piece of constipation. So we know the mechanics of it. Now we understand that it's going to be a part of the experience overall in general. But can you give me maybe your perspective on what you're seeing um, in the community around the other pieces? So that psychological side that we touched on, how, you know, the longer you you are going through a stint of constipation, the more, mm-hmm. you know, frustrating it is. And it's hard to get out and be social and perhaps go to work and, and be productive. You know, mm-hmm. what are the other things that you're seeing happening with OIC? Um. I think, I mean, it really can affect so many things, right? It can affect your sleep. If your abdomen hurts, you don't sleep well. If you don't sleep well, you don't do anything else well. I mean, I think that that's a fair statement. I think the other problem that I've seen, especially I see it more with my elderly patients, but that doesn't mean that it's not across the board, um, is that they'll just choose to be in pain. Mm. Um, You know, because they really hate that feeling. So it's like, what, it's like, what is worse? Right. Mm. If you have two bad options to choose from, which bad option do you want less, you know, or more? Um, And so I think that that's a big problem because that also then cycles into the same thing. Then you're not sleeping, then you're not being able to do things. But abdominal symptoms can be very distressing. And I think that that's one of the things that people they'll start manipulating. For those who may be unfamiliar, could you elaborate a little bit on the specific symptoms of opioid-induced constipation? Uh, And then how can individuals differentiate between regular constipation and constipation that is a result of opioid use? And then also, what are the key signs that they should be aware of? So there's a lot to unpack there. So the first part is just, what are the specific specific symptoms of OIC? Okay. So um, I think probably everybody has been constipated in one way or another some point in their life. But I think really one of the um, kind of um, typical, for lack of a better word, like one of the main symptoms is that it doesn't stop, right? It doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. So people get a feeling of fullness. Mm -hmm. Um, They get a feeling of uh, when they do go to the bathroom, they don't feel like they're done, like they don't feel like it worked enough or that they're all the way empty. Um, They get a lot of abdominal pain. Um, Sometimes, especially if it's been going on for a while, they get nausea. And that's just because literally everything is backing up. Nothing is moving through. And the longer stuff sits in your stomach, the worse you feel. So those are the big things. I think the other thing is, is with regular constipation, I, I hate to say regular, but you non-opioid-induced constipation. Right. With regular constipation, usually eventually, you know, day three, maybe people go. With opioid-induced constipation, you can see day three pass, day four pass, day yeah. five pass. And on day eight, you're panicking, yes. right? And you feel awful. And it, it really affects your 
whole quality of life. Right. Like if your gut isn't feeling good, there's no way the rest of you can feel good. For sure. So, and it's hard yeah. to focus on anything other than a it's the patient and also yeah. patient, right? Yeah. Okay. Good. That's really helpful. Now, um, is there a way, is is it relatively clear when to tell the difference between whether it's OIC or just a sort of regular type of constipation? I know you touched on it a little bit, but are there ways to discern the two? I think the biggest thing is that it's a shift from your normal. Okay. So people kind of know what their norm is. You know, I have patients who will say, oh, well, I haven't had a bowel movement in however many days, but I always have to ask them, well, like, what, what's your normal? Like, have you been constipated since you were a child? Like, is every three days normal for you? Right. Or were you a twice a day person, right? Mm-hmm. So if there's a shift, mm-hmm. um, very often, especially if people are taking opioids episodically, like they have days where they need a little bit more and days where they need a little bit less, they get good at knowing like, oh, I'm going to take this but it's going to result in this. I think it's harder to distinguish when somebody is on a set regimen because then their new norm is always having those mu receptors activated, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and so, um, and I think it's also important to remember that it's not always black and white, Mm -hmm. right? It's, there's a lot, like we said at the beginning, there's a lot of mechanisms for constipation. So very rarely, very rarely are people only on an opioid, Mm -hmm. right? They might be on something for their blood pressure. They might be on, um, a lot of patients are on something for their mood because their nervous system, you know, does pain and it does mood. So they might be on an antidepressant that can cause constipation. You know, they might be on something for their allergies that can cause constipation. So, you know, it would be lovely if we could say, oh, it's this and right. But yeah, but we're, we're more complicated. So I don't think it's always easy to tell uh, unless you're going up and down on your medication and then you can see a correlation. Right. Okay. That's a really important message. I love that. Yes. We just need to do a slightly deeper dive to really get the full picture to understand more about what perhaps is going on. And that's why, you know, oftentimes, well, it worked for my neighbor. (laughs) Right. Right. It's not necessarily going to work. Okay. So we just need to understand that it's not a one size fits all. Okay. So we did touch on this uh, when we talked to Nicole. You also brought it up a little bit, but you know we know there's so much more than just the biological piece of constipation. So we know the mechanics of it now. We understand that it's going to be a part of the experience overall in general. But can you give me maybe your perspective on what you're seeing um, in the community around the other pieces? So that psychological side that we touched on, how you know the longer you you are going through a stint of constipation, the more, you know, frustrating it is and it's hard to get out and be social and perhaps go to work and, and be productive, you know, mm-hmm. what are the other things that you're seeing happening with OIC? Um, I think, I mean, it really can affect so many things, right? It can affect your sleep. If your abdomen hurts, you don't sleep well. If you don't sleep well, you don't do anything else well. I mean, I think that that's a fair statement. I think the other problem that I've seen, especially I see it more with my elderly patients, but that doesn't mean that it's not across the board, um, is that they'll just choose to be in pain, Mm. Um, you know, because they really hate that feeling. So it's like, what, it's like, what is worse, Mm. right? If you have two bad options to choose from, which bad option do you want less, you know, or more? Um, and so I think that that's a big problem because 
that also then cycles into the same thing. Then you're not sleeping, then you're not being able to do things. But abdominal symptoms can be very distressing. And I think that that's one of the things that people, they'll start manipulating their pain medications because of that. Right. Um, the other thing that I think they do is a lot of times people will try all the things that, you know, that their cousin right. used or their dog sitter's best friend's neighbor used. Um, and they can get into some trouble with that too, right? Because now you're having loose stools and you can't run out, you can't go out, you can't do all of these other things, right. or they're trying things that really aren't indicated. Um but I think that that can be one of the other things that comes up a lot. How do you talk through that? So when you have someone who is having to make that, well, they feel they're having to make that decision around, do I just focus on the uh, on the pain or do I deal with the constipation as well? So what mm -hmm. happens? How do you talk through someone that trying to make that decision? How can we help them through that? Yeah. So I think um, when somebody is trying to decide, they shouldn't have to make that decision, Right. Um, it shouldn't be an either or. And I think so often we default to like, oh, it's this or that. But like, one of my favorite questions to ask my patients is like, what's the third option? Mm. What's the option that we didn't really explore? Mm -hmm. So sometimes um, that that can take all sorts of different um, mechanisms. Sometimes it, the patients really don't want to be taking the opioid because they don't like the idea of it. Right. Um, but they also have to be able to move. Right. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows that like their cardi no cardiologist is going to tell you to move less. Right. No endocrinologist is going to say sit around. Right. Yep. So we have to move. We yep. have to be able to move. And if using the pain medications allows you to do that, yep. then we need to figure out what other ways we can do use to manage the constipation. And um what other things could we do that maybe aren't opioids that could allow you to feel better? Right. So that maybe you can rely a little bit less on the opioids. The opioids, you know, people start on opioids because they're quick and yeah. they work, yeah. right? They can often work effectively, yeah. especially initially early on. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that there's not lots of other things that we can try to help the pain to right. decrease the opioids, to decrease the opioid constipation. Well said. Okay. So how effective are other tools like Movement. I know movement typically is helps to get the bowels moving. Moving. I know we have to take the movement uh, into a very safe space. Um, you know, working through yeah, of course. fear movement, all that stuff. But can movement be an effective part of the protocol? I think movement is an effective part of life, and I say that with the caveat of, of course, like not everybody can go for a walk, right? Right. right. Um, and so I'm a very aware of that. So I would say like. Movement is great if you can do it. Yes. It doesn't change the effect of the opioids on the mu receptors. Right. But it does do other things, right? It does increase the movement of your bowels. It can help with other things. It can help with your mood. So I I think, um, and I think that this is, um, I'm going to put a little plug in here for nurses and nurse practitioners, but I think this is one of the beauty of being a nurse or a nurse practitioner. And of course, there are other people who do this, but you can't take one part of the person and separate it out from the rest of the person, right? Like we are a whole. So movement is important. Is it going to cure your opioid-induced mm -hmm. constipation? No, it's not. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and find other ways. And if that means literally getting up and down from your kitchen chair three times every time you sit at your kitchen chair, then so be it, mm -hmm. right? Like that's a place to start. Right. So. 
I agree. I think that's great. Even a small, gentle twisting motion is just going to help things, right? So it doesn't have to be big. And I think that's often the assumption. Yeah. Got to be a long walk. So, okay. Thank you for addressing that. I did mention at the beginning um, of the podcast about just some statistics around, you know, opioid use and um, patients feeling like they need to now either come off because of the constipation or alter their pain plan as a result of constipation. So, um, in the study, it said almost half of the respondents changed their medication due to the effects of opioid-induced constipation. But I would love to explore this a little more with you. So given that almost half of the respondents modified their opioid therapy due to constipation, what are the primary options or strategies available for individuals looking to adapt their protocol, opioid protocol while mm-hmm. still managing constipation effectively. So we talked about movement, but what other things would you say uh, could be helpful for those listeners? Um, I, I think there's two things. I think, first of all, um, one of the best things we can do is kind of brainstorm around how they're taking their opioids. So oftentimes, a lot of times, patients will come and they say, I don't think that this is working that great. And this is outside of the constipation conversation, but mm-hmm. um I don't think they're working that great. It's not giving me enough relief. I need to go up on the dose, which is a reasonable thought, right? Like if it's not working, you go up. Right. Unfortunately, when you go up, you get more activation of those mu receptors. So you're going to get more constipation, right? Like that's just science, right? It more equals more. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the key things, and this is a great thing for a patient to think about, I think more and more providers need to think about it is, have a conversation about how you're actually taking your medications. Because if you're always in pain at four o'clock in the afternoon and you take your medication at five o'clock, but it's every day at four o'clock and now you can't get it under control and now you need a higher dose. What happens if we just take it at three o'clock every day? Mm. Mm. And it sounds obvious, but it's not obvious when you're in pain and you're thinking I have to take it four times a day. And this is what they said. And four times a day means breakfast, lunch, dinner, and bedtime. So I think sometimes just being creative about like, tell me about what you're trying to do. Like, do you need a higher dose or do you need to prep dinner at 10 AM and throw it in the oven at five? Right. Right. So I think sometimes we can avoid dose escalation with some good conversations. And if we can avoid dose escalation, we can avoid uh-huh. constipation. Right. Um, I think the other things that can help, obviously, you know, trying to eat a balanced diet. Now, when we don't feel good, we don't want carrots, we want cake. Right. right? And, that's, and that's understandable. That's because that hits that part of your brain that makes you feel better. Carrots don't hit that same part. Right. So it's just comes back to some mindfulness around that. And like, okay, if you if you can't give up cake, what other things can you do? Right. Um, And I think there are a lot of non-opioid options that can be explored Mm -hmm. um, once you're in this place of feeling a little bit better, right? You have, like, we can work on managing the constipation. There are medications specifically for that. There are some over-the-counter things that people use. But what are the other things that we can use? Do you use topical agents? Do you use techniques that can help downregulate your nervous system, like mindfulness or like being engrossed in something, right? Or smells, like if you love essential oils, I don't like essential oils. I'll probably be crucified for saying that. I, I They give me a headache, but I really love the smell of oranges and mm-hmm. I love the smell of basil. Like it doesn't have to be something that fancy, yeah. you know? Right. Um, so I think those are some of the other things. It really just takes some creativity 
Right. Um, and some open and to starting the conversation. Right. Okay. So this is demonstrating two really important things. First of all, what the options are, mm-hmm. you know, beyond just um, coming off opioids for, right. you know, uh, addressing constipation, but also I think it's the power. I'm sorry. Here's a little plug for both of us is the coaching, the conversations around exploring different options. Right. Just by you asking a question around what is the third option opens up a whole door, right? For yeah. other so bravo I think that's that's powerful as well so we've talked a lot about uh different strategies that we can use when I was talking to Nicole one of the big aha moments was um it really should be the caregivers or the physicians who are the ones regularly asking the client the 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 patient about constipation as opposed you know the the weight or the burden being completely on the patient and so how can individuals proactively engage with healthcare providers or vice versa to discuss modifications to their opioid therapy i think this is really the crux of it right because people are afraid to bring this up because if the opioid has been the only thing thus far that's really helped them they're afraid that the answer will be come off the opioid, right? right? Or go down on the opioid. So they don't want to have the conversation. I think sometimes too, people are just embarrassed. And I, I kind of forget that because, you know, when you go through any kind of medical training, you get so, it's it's like immersion training of uncomfortable things, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not uncomfortable to me to mm-hmm. talk about constipation, but right. that's because I talk about it all the time. Right. To somebody else, it might be really kind of, um, unnerving. And so I think a, par- a big part of it is provider education. When you say, how are your bowel movements? You know what people say? Oh, fine. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, I'm taking, I'm taking prunes or, and, and that can be helpful, right? But do you follow up with that? Okay. How many times are you having, what is fine? How mm-hmm. many times are you having a bowel movement? Is it different than your normal? Um, and I would just, of course, it should fall to the providers to mm-hmm. ask, but there's a lot of things that we have to check off mm-hmm. in our visits mm-hmm. to justify opioid use. And it seems silly, but we all know we need to protect the ability for patients to get the opioids. We need to protect the ability for the providers to write for them. There's a lot of things that we need to make sure that we do for safety. So I think, unfortunately, when it's and it's not appropriate, but it falls to the bottom of the list of like, oh, what am I talking about today? Mm-hmm. Right. And so I would just say to patients who may be listening, like, of course, bring it up. This is important to you. It's not embarrassing to the provider. Mm -hmm. It's not embarrassing to the provider, period. It's not. Um, And there may be a lot of options. Right. So I think first off, we do need to have provider education to remind just how many people are suffering with this and and how it may be impacting your other numbers. So we think you know, we ask how you're doing on a scale of zero to 10, or we look at quality of life measures. And if they're poor, we think, oh, the pain is poorly managed. Mm -hmm. But what we know from the studies is that quality of life with opioid induced constipation is significantly worse. So now are we looking at a measure and inappropriately um, interpreting it, right? Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that the quality of life is good or bad based on what we're doing and that we're not making anything worse. Right, And so I think having the conversation about constipation um, really needs to be for everybody. People should feel comfortable to bring it up. Right. Um, and providers need to keep it on the front of their, of their agenda too. Right. Um, right. 
because nobody wants, listen, we all went into this so that patients wouldn't have to suffer with pain um, as much as we can, right? To get it down to a, a, a low level. So that's kind of. Good. Okay. And I'm going off the cuff here, but I think it's an important measure. Maybe if we can spend a little time just sort of addressing both for the provider as well as the patient coming in, but what sort of ways can they uh, create a safe space to be able to either have these conversations or to come forward with these conversations? Is there anything they can do either before the the uh, appointment or while they're in, like, is there anything the physicians can be doing while they're in that space to create that safe space for the conversation to happen? Yes, I think um, from a provider standpoint, I'll start with that. From a provider standpoint, I think we need to slow down. Mm. Not necessarily slow down in our interaction, but slow down in our heads. Mm -hmm. um, and just not assume that we know what the person is going through or what they're going to say. Mm -hmm. um, because that's where we kind of get off track. And we, and we, you know, we have all these great ideas and we're excited and we think like, okay, we can do this, this, and this, and this. But we didn't even stop. To, we started with a faulty assumption. So I think if we can just kind of slow down and realize that we just need to listen a little bit better. Uh, and I think sometimes, which we don't often do because we're not trained to do, is ask when we go into the room, like, what do you want to get out of this, out of this 15 minutes or 10 minutes? Right. Um, you know, we think, oh, everybody's so rushed, 10 minutes isn't enough. You can get a lot done in 10 or 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think just kind of slowing down and asking um, the patient, I think on the flip side, a lot of patients are like, wait, what? Right. Right. <laughs> so, um, and if they say, you know, something like I, I, you know, I want to have my pain under better control. What does that look like for you? What does that even mean? Like, is that a number or is that sitting through your grandchild's lacrosse game? Right. right? Like, what is that? So yeah. from a provider standpoint, I think just normalizing the conversation, um, asking like it's not a big deal because it isn't a, it's a big deal to experience it's not a big deal to talk about hey, there you go right yeah. right yeah. so I don't want to say it's not a big deal yeah. um think from um a patient perspective I mean this may sound inappropriate but the best example I can give is when I was in NP school I had to do a women's health rotation and so I went in the first day and like had to do a pap smear now I had never done any of this mm -hmm. right and I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And the, the patient's uncomfortable, understandably, because this is no situation that all of us love. Right. And like, so it was a very awkward first week. By the end of the summer, I had done hundreds of mm -hmm. pap smears. And by the end, I was like, come on, just like, just open your legs. Like, <laughs> it's not a big deal. But my point is, is that something that can seem so awful yes. with repetitive exposure is really like... It's, it wasn't it, it wasn't uncomfortable for me. And I think so often when people are uncomfortable, they think it's because the other person is going to be uncomfortable. Right, right. Like, how are they going to interpret this? What are they going to think if I bring this up? What are they going to say? What are, and so it's normal. Like, it's just as normal as an OBGYN doing thousands of pap smears a year. Right. Like, nobody would go in and be like, oh, I wonder if this is making my OBGYN uncomfortable. Right. No. no. Like, like, so I think it's, a, and you can take some comfort from that, knowing that you're not making your OBGYN uncomfortable, right? right. It's like, okay, I can put up with a little bit of discomfort because I know she's not uncomfortable or he's not uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say it's, I know that's a kind of wacky 
No, um, but it's good. It's good. Yeah. No, and I think it's sometimes a shift of perspective, right? It's almost like yeah. you know, if you can go in there understanding that it's not a big deal and whatever words you need to tell yourself to feel a little more comfortable coming yeah. from the conversation, yeah. the better. And I think the other thing is with that, like, are you willing to be a little bit, un- say it is uncomfortable, say you can't get your head around it and it's just uncomfortable to talk about constipation. Yeah. Fine. But are you willing to put up with that little bit of discomfort of having the conversation for the potential outcome of feeling better? Right. Yes. Right. Are you willing to take one for your own team? Yes. Right. For yourself, so that you can feel better. And I think that that's really that's that's the shared goal. Patients want to feel better. Providers want their patients to feel better. Right. Um, and sometimes you just kind of gotta yeah talk about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Good. Excellent. I, I know we could talk about this for hours. I just love this conversation. Before I let you go, um, two things. Is there any resources that you think would be really helpful for our listeners on OIC specifically? So uh, there is the OICAwarenessDay.com um, website. Okay. Um, so I think that that can be really helpful. Um, I will say if you can, if if patients are in a community of other pain patients, I run a, a coaching group at our practice mm-hmm. um, once a week, and people are not alone in experiencing this. And I can't tell you the relief that the women in my group, currently it's women, that's um, the women in my group have by sharing this experience and being able to talk to somebody else, like, what do you do for your constipation? What did you try? What what I mean, last week we were talking about heated toilet seats and for some reason that, you know, but my point is, is that people are not alone in this. And when you feel alone, that's where it can really get terrible. So I think, you know, going to the OICAwarenessDay.com gives you a lot of resources, but if you're in a pain community, again, maybe, maybe take one for the team and bring it up because there's a lot of other people who would really benefit from just having that normalized by the community that they're in. Right. So, um, that's, that's another, I think that's a untapped resources, other people who are ex- experiencing that. Right. Yes. I have, I also have a free group and it's just community-based There's just conversations, really good conversations right. with each other. So you're not feeling alone and it's not all commiserating. It's really just also just knowing you can talk to someone about it and maybe ask what their experience is like, or how did they talk to their doctor about it? You know, there's lots of different exactly. ways. Exactly. And sometimes it's even, well, what provider did you go to that listened? Exactly. You know, or what other, I, I don't think it's, um, you know, I think support groups can get a, a bad rap because people feel that a lot of people are kind of dumping, but it all goes into what you want to bring into it. And if you're willing to, if you're willing to start the conversation so that maybe people can have mm-hmm. some camaraderie and some input, I mean, who knows better than the people who are experiencing it? Exactly. Oh, so well said. And I think that's one of the best ways to end off. However, I did want to ask before I let you go, um, was there anything we may have missed? Anything that you wanted to address before we go? Um, I don't think so. It, well, there's one thing, and this is just a technicality, um, but I I do want to say that a lot of people feel that starting with natural ways first is mm-hmm. always the best way. And I would say, uh, I agree that a lot of natural things can be very helpful. Uh, the one thing I do want to say is if people are on opioids, I wouldn't, it's not recommended that they use psyllium products. 
Mm. like bulk forming products uh-huh. and that's kind of counterintuitive because people always think oh it's plant-based oh it's good it's right but it makes more bulk in the bowel so it's good for regular constipation yeah. yes. but not and I, I know that's kind of a funny thing to end on but I I, I feel like people as providers we assume people know that right like, oh don't use that well how would you know that like if nobody tells you you don't know no so, um so that's the only thing I think listen talk about it try and bring it up with other people with pain bring it up with your provider. Um, and you know, there's some good resources. So yeah, I would say look into those. You don't have to struggle with it. And, and actually I'm glad you don't. And I'm really glad you brought up the psyllium because I meant to, and I forgot. So thank you. Fantastic. Well, I it at the end. I'm like better to put it, better to put it somewhere. No, great, great way to end off. So again, thank you so, so very much for being here. I appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate it too. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in to our little podcast. Before you go, I just want to let you know about a community that we've just launched for those who live with chronic pain, especially those who are feeling isolated or lonely and really want to forge new connections. We've opened up a space, a free space, for those looking to create those meaningful connections with others. It's not on Facebook. And it's not your typical support group in the sense where we just talk about pain. It is so much bigger than that. So if you're looking to be a part of something bigger, a part of an amazing community of other people going through much the same as you, I'd love to invite you in. Simply go to paintopossibilities.com. That's pain number two, possibilities.com to enter our free community. And before you go, if I can ask one big favor, This little podcast cannot get to those who really need it unless you subscribe to this podcast. So subscribe to the podcast, share and like, and that way those who really need to get this message of hope will. Thank you again for tuning in.